I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. As is typical in a book sermon, I'm, I'm not going to, of course, sit in a passage. We're going to walk through the entire book. Now, I have to admit, um, I, I almost didn't take this book sermon seriously. When you consider that the last couple of books that we've been in in the morning, uh, well, the last one we were in was 1 Corinthians, and the one before that, uh, or the one in the evening uh, that I, I started was in Ezekiel. Those are big books to try to squeeze into one sermon. Um, and so I saw First Thessalonians, okay, not, you know, five chapters, we can handle this, but, but it is such a rich book. There's so much to learn from this book, and I trust that this evening, the, the book sermon that we, we uh, begin with will um, give you perspective. And this is why we do these book sermons, because oftentimes when we're studying particularly the New Testament, we find that it can be easy to lose the forest for the trees. We're so busy looking at all of those individual words and everything that we're trying to study about the individual, the, the, the passage or the, the, the verse or, or the one word itself, and we lose sight of what the overriding message, the overriding theme of the book is intended to be. So as we start these series, we begin by learning about the book as a whole with the expectation and desire that by starting out broad and then narrowing, we'll remember the broad while we're trudging through the narrow. We'll remember as we're looking at each individual tree that we are indeed walking in a forest and remember what that forest is all about. Why we're here to begin with. What Paul is trying to get across. See, these were letters. And when you consider a letter, particularly one that we might say as short as 1 Thessalonians, uh, letters are intended to be read as a whole. Now, obviously, when we get to the, the Old Testament and maybe um, some other um, types of writing, not epistles, uh, things maybe weren't intended to be necessarily read in one sitting, but it still gives us tremendous insight to look at the book as a whole. And so we are in First Thessalonians this evening, and the title of the message is Faithfulness, Regardless, faithfulness regardless. You know, life isn't fair. You've heard that statement before and you'll hear it again. And in many ways, that statement is indeed true. In, in some ways even, we might say it states the obvious, that life isn't fair. Things don't always go as our human sense of justice thinks they should. Hard work doesn't always pay off, does it? Good in this life does not always triumph over evil, does it? Bad things do happen to good people, don't they? The adage, nice guys finish last, there's, there's a little something to that in this life. This morning we spoke about some of these difficulties in this life and particularly as they relate to the Christian life. Difficulties in the Christian life are not just possible, but they are, in fact, oftentimes to be expected. We spoke this morning that we live in a world that doesn't like us, not inherently because of who we are. There's not all that many people who I've talked to that look at me and say, you know, I don't like your personality. I don't like how you look, those sorts of things, as much as they don't like us because of who we serve. 
They hate us because they hate the one who sent us. And that's just the way it is. Men love darkness rather than light. And in a dark world, the light shines bright. And the darker the world gets, the brighter the light shines. And darkness will fight against this with all its might. But we also learned something else this morning. This morning we learned that we have something to look forward to. In this world, hard work doesn't always pay off, but we know that in the world to come, our hard work for Christ in this life will matter in the next. In this world, good doesn't always triumph over evil in this life, but we know that at the end of all things, we've read the end of the book, in the consummation of all things, good will indeed triumph. And not just triumph a little bit, it will triumph absolutely. In this life, bad things do happen to good people, but in the life to come, there will be only good. The former things will not only pass away, but the Scriptures tell us we will not even be able to remember the former things, to remember the bad. And what God asks of us, of you and of I, uh, uh, you and, and me, there we go, in light of the life to come is faithfulness in this life. Faithfulness through the pain. Faithfulness through the suffering. Faithfulness through the trials that life has to offer. It sounds like I'm rehashing what we talked about this morning. It's, it's uh, amazing to see how God does that sometimes. My, I do plan my sermons. However, there's some ebb and some flow based upon how far we get on any given day. And yet, these two sermons did indeed kind of collide and they have a very similar message in some ways. So we're going to look at the epistle of 1 Thessalonians. And we're not going to dive in deep just yet, but I would like you to take a look with me at verse 1 for our introduction. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'd like us to begin this evening by considering the ministers that are writing this epistle to the Thessalonian church. And the first minister listed here is a man named Paul. Paul of Tarsus is actually who, who this man is. We are very familiar with him. And he was not just the first man listed, but, but we recognize that he is the one that wrote this epistle to this church. This church was a church in the city of Thessalonica, which is in Macedonia. We'll look at a map in just a moment after we get through um, the, these first few men and who they were. But uh, you also are welcome to look at one in the back of your Bible. Thessalonia was in Macedonia, which was in a, a Greek province of Rome, a formerly Greek province of Rome. And it was in the northern area of um, that province. We all know Paul well. Paul was originally from Tarsus. He was born a Roman citizen. His Hebrew name was Saul. So he went by Saul regularly until such time as he was saved and then commissioned to go to the Gentile believers, where at which time he used his Gentile name. Many of the men of that day had a, a Greek name and a Hebrew name if they were Jews. 
a Roman citizen raised and trained as a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he would have been a man that knew the law very well. The scriptures tell us he wasn't just a Pharisee, but Paul called himself a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a man who was, he excelled in his craft. He knew the law. He sat at the feet of one of the foremost Pharisees, the foremost uh, religious leaders of the day, a man named Gamaliel, a man who was well known in Jewish circles as a, a, a great teacher. We understand the story of Paul. He was saved as he was walking on the road to Damascus, going to find, root out Christians and see that they were arrested, some perhaps even killed for their faith. And Paul was gloriously saved when the risen Lord Jesus Christ physically appeared to him and commissioned him to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is the first man listed as one who is addressing this letter to the Thessalonians. The second man listed is a man named Silvanus. Now, as far as we can understand it, Silvanus uh, was the Greek name for the Hebrew Silas. You recall, perhaps, that Paul had always took a partner with him when he went on these journeys. They often call his missionary journeys. We can call them that. We cannot. But as he went from church to church, city to city, proclaiming the gospel, establishing churches, he took people with him. And on his first journey, he took a man named Barnabas, commissioned by the church of Antioch. Paul and Barnabas went, were sent by that church, planted many churches, and came back, gave their report, spent some time with the church there. They decided at some point, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but they decided at some point to go on a second journey. Paul and Barnabas did. To, and this journey was to confirm, to visit and to confirm the churches. However, they had a little bit of a disagreement. See, on the first journey, there had been a man named Mark, John Mark, who had gone with them, started at least, the problem was he didn't finish. He left early. He, we don't know what happened. Got discouraged. Got homesick. We don't know. But he left. And Paul was not interested in taking John Mark again. Barnabas was. And the Scriptures tell us in the book of Acts that the contention was so sharp between them that they had to part ways. And so Barnabas took John Mark... And they went their way. And Paul took a man named Silas. And Paul and Silas went on this second journey together. Well, as best we can tell from Scripture, Silas, that Silas that Paul took, is this man, Silvanus. In the book of Acts, Silas is quite regularly his name. Outside of the book of Acts, we really don't see the name Silas much. And this, this makes sense. What we know about Silas is that he was likely also a Roman citizen. In Acts 16, they are put in prison in Philippi, you recall. And there, as the, there's an attempt by the government to apologize to them by letting them go, Paul says, no, you can't get off that easy. We are Roman citizens. Paul and Silas were in prison, and Paul said not only he was a Roman citizen, but that Silas was a Roman citizen. This gives more credence to the idea that Silas had a Greek or a Roman name because he was a Roman citizen. 
And so it, it makes uh, good sense that Silvanus and Silas are the same. Again, we, we recognize that he was the one chosen by Paul to accompany him after separating from Barnabas. He was a faithful brother and a servant in the Lord. So Paul wrote, Silvanus is also mentioned here, and then the third man is Timotheus. Timotheus was a man of the city Lystra. According to Acts 16, Timotheus had a Jewish mother and a Greek father. He was not a part of the Jewish religion. We, we know from the Scriptures that he had not, before he met Paul, been circumcised. But he had readily believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and had greatly flourished in the faith. Of all the ministers of God in the Bible, Timothy was without question the one that was closest to Paul and the one that was nearest and dearest to Paul's heart. In fact, we recognize that Paul um, wrote two very personal letters to this man, Timothy. And we can find those letters in our Bible under the titles 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Written to this man, a fellow minister, uh, a, a young man, uh, relatively speaking, who went along with Paul on his second journey once they found him, at least. And that brings us to this map. It's uh, fairly readable for you there. You'll find uh, color-coded in the blue Paul's first journey, the one he took with Barnabas, and color-coded in the red Paul's second journey, the one he took with Silas. And on this second journey in particular, you'll notice that they came uh, they, from Antioch and, and they ended up in Derby and Iconia and Lystra. It was in Lystra here where Paul found Timothy. He was traveling with Silas or Silvanus. They found Timothy there in Lystra. These were churches you can see from the blue that they had already established on their first journey. These are, are churches that were now operating. They were running Acts 17 tells us, well, just prior in Acts 16, the Scriptures tell us that Paul, Silas, and at this point Timotheus desired to go into Asia and to preach the Gospel in Asia, but the Holy Spirit would not let them go. So, uh, Paul is, is wondering where to go, what he should do, and then he received a vision from a man in Macedonia saying, please come to Macedonia and give us the gospel. Paul recognized this to be from the Lord and immediately set out to go to Macedonia. And Macedonia, as we look at this map, is the one up here in blue. So the, uh, we see Macedonia up across the Aegean Sea from Asia in this area that they had been uh, ministering in. And as they went into Macedonia, they began in Neapolis, then to Philippi. We talked a little bit about Philippi already and the, the difficulty that they had had there. They had to contend with some, some terrible things, but we also know of some great victories. They met Lydia there, the seller of, of the color purple, you recall. They also were imprisoned, as we already talked about, and uh, we see the Philippian jailer who received the gospel of Jesus Christ, and was saved. They left Philippi, went to Amphipolis, and then they ended up in Thessalonica. And we see the account of them in Thessalonica in Acts 17. 
And what we find about their time in Thessalonica was that it was indeed quite profitable, but it was also very difficult. Paul always went to the synagogues first when he went into any, any city. And when he went into Thessalonica, of course, he was received as a rabbi. He was a Pharisee. He had sat under Gamaliel. He was received. They allowed him to speak. But very soon, as it was common in these towns, they found that they didn't like what Paul had to say. They found that the gospel of Jesus Christ was something that they weren't interested in. Well, Paul stayed in Thessalonica, and we're not sure how long he stayed. Certainly enough time to give them some instruction, as we'll see from the book, that they had received some instruction. But certainly not as long as Paul would have wanted to have stayed. He left feeling as though he hadn't, give, he hadn't had enough time to teach them as he wanted to. Well, the Jews in Thessalonica were not just angry. They were violent. They were um, dangerous. So much so that Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus were forced to flee for their lives. And they fled to Berea. We don't know a whole lot about the Bereans, except that everything that Paul said, they went and they searched the Scriptures to see if it was true. That is the testimony of the Bereans, that they were those who searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. However, Paul didn't get a whole lot of time in Berea either because those violent and angry Jews from Thessalonica actually traced his steps and chased him all the way to Berea and ran him out of Berea as well. So Paul leaves Timotheus and Silvanus in Berea and he flees and ends up in Athens. Now, what we understand here, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more as we, we continue through the book and we get to 1 Thessalonians 3. But what we understand here, what I'm trying to get you to see through our understanding of, of um, the book of Acts and what happened in Thessalonica, is that these Christians that stayed in Thessalonica found themselves in a very difficult place. The Jews there were very violent they were very angry. They were very hostile against the Word of God. But those in the church of Thessalonica were not quite like Paul or Barnabas or, I mean, excuse me, or, or Silas or Timotheus. They weren't just going to up and leave, right? Their lives were there. They lived there. Which means they were coming to a place where they were going to have to endure the difficulty, where they were going to have to endure the trials of these, this contingency of the population that would hate them and that would seek to destroy them. And that lays the foundation for the difficulty that um, Paul will be addressing throughout the book. When was this book written? Well, it's very possible that this was the very first epistle that Paul wrote. And it was likely written in 52 to 53 AD while Paul was in Corinth. Let me fill in a few more gaps for you. When Paul left Berea, he fled to Athens. When he got to Athens, Acts chapter 17 tells us, um, specifically uh, in verse 15, that Paul wrote a letter to Silas and to Timotheus telling them that they needed to come to him quickly in Athens. And the scriptures say that they came. And so, it seems likely that Silas and Timothy came to Athens and met Paul. 
And when they got there, Paul immediately sent them out. He sent Timotheus back to Thessalonica and he sent Silas, well, we don't know where. The scriptures don't tell us. The only reason why we know Timothy was sent back to Thessalonica is because of 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, tells us so. That Paul was so concerned about the church that when they got to Athens, they immediately sent Timothy back out to check on the church in Thessalonica. Then Paul gives his great speech in Athens at Mars Hill, uh, speaking to the Epicureans and the Stoics about their philosophies. And Paul then leaves the city of Athens and goes to Corinth. When he gets to Corinth, he meets a couple of um, very friendly folk to him. He meets Aquila and Priscilla. And he begins ministering there and has a good reception among the Corinthians. And the scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 18, verse 5, that Silas and Timotheus met him in Corinth. So Timothy has come back and he gives his report about what happened in Thessalonica. And it seems as though it was soon after Timothy gets to Corinth and gives his report about what happened in Thessalonica that Paul then writes his letter to the church to praise the Lord for their faithfulness in the midst of great suffering. So now you know a little bit of the history, a little bit of the foundation Now we look at the epistle itself. And if you have an outline, uh, there's some on the back table if you didn't get one. The epistle is, uh, there's of course the introduction, the conclusion, and then it's kind of basically broken up into two sections. In chapters 1 through 3, we see the, the purpose for the book, the purpose for his writing. Paul is uniquely candid and uniquely personal here. Uh, it's not that he never gets that personal, but to spend over half of his epistle talking about how uh, pleased he is with their steadfastness in the faith and all of these, these very personal aspects um, is somewhat unique for Paul's writings. However, it is not unique to see an epistle broken up into two distinct parts. We see this quite regularly in Paul's epistles. The epistles of Ephesians and Colossians are broken up into two distinct parts. Paul begins by uh, being very doctrinal and then he transitions to being very practical. In Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3 are doctrinal. Chapters 4 through 6 are practical. In Colossians, chapters 1 and 2 are doctrinal. Chapters 3 and 4 are practical. In Romans, we sort of see the same setup. We see um, the the initial doctrine, chapters 1 through 5, and then we see the um, practical application in chapters 6, 7, 8, and 12. Say, Pastor, you missed a few. Yeah, I missed 9, 10, and 11. Paul takes a little parenthesis, takes a little rabbit trail, and he starts talking about the place of the Jews. But it's still basically a a, a, a two-division book. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul presents first his purpose, his reason for writing, and then uh, the doctrine and application kind of together, exhortations in light of his purpose. And if we're going to boil Paul's purpose down to the very root, his purpose for writing this book would be loving concern. Deep and loving concern for these 
people. Paul was concerned that when he left, the church had not been sufficiently grounded spiritually to endure the trials that they were facing. Remember we told you of the severe violence of the Jews in Thessalonica. If Paul's teaching in 1 Thessalonians concerning believers who are dead, the dead in Christ is any indication, it seems likely that many Christians since the time Paul had left that church had been martyred for their faith. Seems likely that that is why Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 seeks to comfort them concerning the dead in Christ. Of course, we'll get there when we get there. So his first purpose, he begins in, verse, uh, in chapter 1 with encouragement, highlighting the manifold evidences that have convinced him that the believers in this town had in truth accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look with me beginning in verse 5. Paul says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were ensamples or examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, how ye turned from God, to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Their faith, Paul said, had been evidenced by the power of their testimony. So strong was this testimony that even in Corinth, Paul had heard talk of the vehement faith of these believers in the midst of the most terrible of persecutions. Their devotion to Christ, even in the face of this deep human suffering, was, Paul says, beyond evidence that their conversion had been genuine. What a tremendous evidence it is of the genuineness of one's faith when we face the tough times and we maintain an allegiance to God. When we face the tough times and we see our way through it. Oftentimes, the Scriptures tell us uh, that it is in these times of great tribulation. Romans chapter 5 tells us, Tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is spread abroad in our hearts. And so Paul wanted to encourage their hearts, to encourage them that what he saw in them was genuine, that he is convinced beyond a doubt that these men and women of the church in Thessalonica had indeed received the gospel. Secondly, in this purpose, however, he felt compelled to remind them And to understand exactly why this was so important to Paul, we really need look no further than chapters 2 and 3. As one reads these chapters, you you can feel the urgency and the concern and the love and the care that Paul has for these believers. It nearly oozes off the page. Paul recounts in chapter 2 his humble declaration of the Gospel. 
that he made in Thessalonica. Paul operated in Thessalonica very similar to the way he did in, in, in most other cities. He didn't expect the people in that church to support him. He worked outside of the church, laboring night and day in order that they might not see in him any sort of guile, any sort of deceit. That there, may, that there would not be anybody who could say, ah, Paul, you're just doing this for money. Because he wasn't. Because he didn't. Look with me in chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Paul says, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear to us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and how justly and how unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. This was the heart of Paul for these people. We can perhaps then understand Paul's relief when he heard uh, that all of their hard work, all of their patience, all of their sacrifice was not in vain. Perhaps we might liken this in some small way to the feeling that a parent has who has invested so much time, so much energy, so much prayer, perhaps so much money into a child, only to watch with joy as you see that child grow up and make the right decisions. Only to watch with joy as you see that child grow up and when, when the difficult times come and he or she could choose to do wrong, you watch them stand and do what's right. And you say, wow, they got it. Wow, they, they, all of that hard work, all of that teaching, it's paying off. They're becoming fine young men and women. The pride and the relief and the joy in the heart of a parent who watches their children live in accordance to what they have been taught is second to none. And this would be similar to that feeling. The joy in the heart of Paul as he received from Timothy this report that these men and women in the church of Thessalonica had stuck to the stuff that what he had taught, even if it was brief and, and, and incomplete, had stuck. And the joy in Paul's heart was rooted in the reality that they followed with determination and with obedience what he says in, in chapter 2, he says he, that they followed the churches of Jerusalem into martyrdom. They were not just hated, they were not just ignored or scorned in Thessalonica, they were not even simply imprisoned. They were killed for their faith. They were tormented for their devotion to Christ. And Paul was greatly troubled that he couldn't be there to help them through it as any parent, whether spiritual or physical, would be. And so chapter 3 tells us he sent Timotheus to check up on him. And Timotheus brought back a report and it was glowing. Look with me in chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. 
But now when Timotheus came from you unto us and brought us good tidings of your faith and charity, and that ye have good remembrance of us always, desiring greatly to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, we were comforted over you all in our affliction and distress by your faith. For now we live, if ye stand fast in the Lord. So Paul tells them that he loves them, that he's praying for them, that he's eager to see them again. And with that, Paul changes topics. He turns his heart and his mind now towards some things which they needed to know. Things which they needed to hear. Important doctrines that they needed to obey. Perhaps some things that he had not been able to tell them the first time around. Or perhaps some things that he had been able to tell them, but, but he wanted to remind them of. And that's what we see in chapters 4 and 5. This begins the doctrinal or applicational section where Paul is going to teach them some important and necessary lessons. And the first lesson he begins as he teaches them is a lesson on sexual cleanness. Perhaps by the time Paul had reached Corinth, he had noticed a trend in these very Greek provinces And that trend was sexual debauchery. Many Greek philosophers in the prime of their day, it would have been several hundred years prior to Paul writing, but many of the Greek philosophers in the prime of their day had been men of tremendous immorality. They rejected the knowledge of God and they replaced that knowledge of God with complete humanism. And just as we see today among those who are steeped in humanism, so we can understand in that day that humanism always leads to a moral ambiguity that brings about the very deepest of debauchery in men. And so there was a great deal of sexual debauchery in these regions, in Thessalonica, perhaps in Philippi, certainly in Corinth and Athens as well. And so Paul exhorts them in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4 unto personal sanctification and honor for the sake of a clean testimony before the world. Consider in chapter 4, verses 3, 4, and 5. Paul says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. Concupiscence is an um, absolutely unrestrained manifestation of your lusts, enactment of your lusts. Paul makes it clear that God's will for God's people is sexual purity. And in fulfilling God's will, will he says the world around them would take notice. So in, in verses 1 through 8, Paul exhorts them to sexual purity. And in, then in verses 9 through 12, Paul exhorts them unto brotherly love. Paul speaks of the necessity of brotherly love for the sake of the testimony among the world, that as they do their duty to love one another, not causing trouble in the world, but walking honestly, walking peaceably, even among the scorners and dissenters, even those that hate them and desire to destroy them, their testimony in and of itself will reveal the truth 
of their message. So Paul first says, be clean among the world. Now he says, be honest in the world. Brotherly love. Third, Paul comforts them concerning the dead in Christ. We spoke about this just briefly. The people of the city had not been believers for all that long. But there were already many who, having accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, were dead. This is not speaking of those who had died prior to accepting the gospel or um, without a knowledge of the gospel. Paul specifically referencing here those who had died in Christ, having received Christ as their Savior. And it is for this reason that we believe the persecution in the city of Thessalonica had gone to the extent of martyrdom. Because there were men and women already, having just been absent from Paul for at most a year, a year and a half, who had died for their faith. But Paul had not really had enough time, it seems, to properly instruct them concerning their hope in the Scriptures. That which we learned about even this morning. So he comforts them now and calls for them to comfort one another that the dead in Christ are indeed going to be with the Lord. The fourth element of doctrine that Paul speaks of is found in the beginning of chapter 5. And he teaches about this doctrine known as the day of the Lord, the period of time at the end of this age when Jesus Christ shall return. He cautions this church to be watchful, knowing that the day of the Lord is coming and to live as if Jesus Christ could come at any moment. And it is from this passage that we formulate a large part of the doctrine that we call the doctrine of imminence or the imminent return of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ could return at any moment and that we need to be ready, watching, busy about the Lord's work. The fifth teaching that Paul gives is found in chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. You can look at it with me. Paul says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Paul encourages the church to have high esteem for their spiritual leaders, for their pastors, for their elders. Perhaps when Paul sent Timotheus to check up on them, he had had a difficult time among them. Perhaps some of the ways Timothy set out to correct them were met with resistance. We don't exactly know what would have encouraged this um, exhortation by Paul, but whatever it might have been, Paul encourages them to respect, to have a high esteem for their spiritual teachers and to treat them with honor. Well, at this point, things get busy in the book. Miscellaneous exhortations from verses 14 through 22 that come as fast as you can read them, one right after another. Beginning in verse 14, Paul says, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the Spirit, despise not prophesying, prove all things, and hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. Now that is a list, is it not? Wow. 
We're going to have fun preaching through that one. I'm going to have fun preaching through that one at least. That, that is a lot to talk about. And mostly with no explanation, but thank God we have an entire Bible. And the Bible is the best commentary on itself, is it not? You want the best commentary on the Bible? You don't need to go to a, another author uh, that has written volumes. There's uh, helps. It does indeed help. I consult commentaries quite regularly, but the best commentary on the Bible on any given book is the other books of the Bible, for they are written to be one complementary whole. The book then closes with a conclusion, and as is typical in Paul's epistles, his conclusion rests with a desire that the grace of God would follow the people of God unto all obedience. Now, Having looked over this book this evening, I know it was a whirlwind, that's okay, because we're going to spend the next several months going through it slowly and carefully. There are some elements of this book that you and I, I, I warn you, will simply not be able to understand. Say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? You and I cannot truly understand the kind of fear and pain and difficulties that accompany intense persecution. It was mentioned in our prayer time by Hope this evening. We cannot even fathom what is going on right now in the Middle East to those Christians. We, we cannot relate. We, we can try. We can read the stories. I, I was tempted this evening to bring Fox's Book of Martyrs. To, to read a few passages from Fox's Book of Martyrs. Perhaps throughout our series we will do so to read of those who Hebrews talks about are uh, those that have, have died for the faith, those who have given their lives, those who have counted the truth of God's Word and the glory of God of greater recompense than even their own lives. And God forbid that we should ever have to go through such deep and difficult and intense persecution. But we may one day. Until that day comes to pass, however, we're not going to be able to fully relate to the depth of the pain that Paul was seeking to address as he wrote to this church. But the thrust of Paul's message in this epistle is in no way dependent upon our being able to relate to that suffering. We don't need to go out and cause such suffering in order to understand what Paul's saying here. We don't need to go out and ask people to treat us badly in order to, to get to where we can understand what Paul is saying. Because simply put, what Paul is telling them in this epistle, as we go throughout this epistle, each week, what we're going to be seeing, where Paul will be directing, the direction that he'll be going, where he's trying to get to with them, is this regardless of what you may be going through, in spite of what you are going through, you as a believer ought to live a life of integrity and devotion, loyalty and obedience. You ought to be a proper testimony to the world, even in spite of difficulties, even in spite of world-imposed difficulties. Jesus Christ told us we are the light of the world. That a city that is set upon a hill cannot be hid. That a man does not light a candlestick in order that he might hide it under a bushel. But he puts it on the candlestick so that it can light 
everything. You and I were not gloriously saved by God to hide out in the corners of this world. You and I were not brought to faith in order that we could hide that faith. We were brought to Christ in order that we might be a testimony of the true and living God. And if such a message goes out to those who have everything to lose for their devotion, a church like Thessalonica, a church like those that are suffering over in the Middle East today, a church where Paul says, don't lose your faith, be a good testimony, be what you ought to be for God, when they had everything to lose. What kind of message should you and I take from it? Who really can go out there and live a testimony of Jesus Christ with nothing to lose? You will lose nothing. Maybe a little bit, depending on where you are in the public square. You will lose very little for your devotion to Jesus Christ if things stay the way they are in this country. Movies come out like God is Not Dead, a fairly recent movie, if you're familiar with it, that show us what we already know. The academic establishment hates Christianity. We know that. We hear of people losing a job or failing a class or angering family members because of their faith in Jesus Christ. We know these things happen. I don't want to minimize these things because these are true acts of faith and courage. But folks, this is really nothing compared to what the Thessalonians went through. Nothing compared to what Pastor Saeed is going through as he's in prison over in the Middle East for his faith. And if we cannot serve God when we have nothing to lose today, I guess the question is, Will we serve God when we do? If the day should come, God forbid, when the government decides we're enemies, will you serve God? Will you remain faithful? Will your faith get through? Will it stand the trial? And it doesn't necessarily have to be something we wonder about. Sure, we cannot know. But what Paul is going to do as we walk through this book, and we have the privilege of walking through it with him, will be to guide our hearts into how you and I can be sure, beyond a doubt, that if that day were to come, we would stand. Paul is going to help us through the Holy Spirit align our lives with Christ in such a way that our devotion and our love to Christ will overshadow our devotion and our love even for our own lives to the degree that we can boldly proclaim, yes, I will stand on that day. And that is why this book matters to you and I today. When you're put to the test, will you pass it? Are you living a testimony of Jesus Christ today? Do people know that you're a believer today? Are you afraid to stand for Christ today? Are you serving God today? Have you chosen the side that you're on? Or are you still kind of in the middle, on the fence, leaning toward the world when it's convenient, leaning toward God when it's convenient, wanting to lean toward God, but so often just the fear of, of man, the fear of what might be just 
causes you to kind of shut your mouth and, and hide, your, hide your light under a bushel? Do you go through the motions just because it's what you've always done or because dad or uncle or whoever says you should? Is it simply because it's what your family expects you to do because it makes you feel good about yourself? Or are you a, in a true, vibrant relationship with the God of heaven? Does what God thinks matter to you? Does God matter to you enough to set aside that which you want for that which He wants? There's still people today dying, suffering in prison, being beat, tortured, losing everything because they have found in Jesus Christ the living water that has parched their thirsty soul. There are people who have given all. Not for some personal advantage for themselves, not for their family or for their friends, but for the God who purchased their redemption with His own blood. And the question that this book will ask and will help lead us, Lord willing, to a bold and decisive answer is what are we doing today? Is there truly in our hearts a willingness to sacrifice for Christ? The moment it gets hard, will we stand or will we flee? The moment we take a little heat, do we jump out of the fire? When the opportunity comes to speak, do we hide? When we can be a testimony by refusing to do what others are doing, do we stand? See, because this Christian life that we lead, what Paul is going to um, teach us and preach us is that it's not a game. We're not just going through the motions, having a good time, hoping that it makes us better people for this life. See, because we have it so easy, we can kind of feel that way sometimes, can't we? But if this Christian life came down to true loss, true suffering, True pain. True shame. Would our faith stand the test? That's the note we're going to end on this evening. By God's grace, it's a question that we're going to have a strong answer to by the end of this series in 1 Thessalonians. As God teaches us and His Holy Spirit guides us into devotion to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer.